Turn, if you would, to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. If you remember from last week, we've made it to the 12th chapter, which is the application half of the book. It's not really half, but we'll conceptually call it half. We started last week with the first two verses, and I encouraged you to go home and uh, memorize the two verses. Did you all go do that? I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. As we start the application part of the book of Romans, we need to recognize that we are spiritual and physical beings. We are not Gnostics. The body is not evil in and of itself. It does not say kill, kill the body. It's just presented as a living sacrifice. Because the body is not to control your life. The spirit is to control your life. As we do all the application, we need to understand that God, the Holy Spirit, our spirit needs to control our body. And then we're given two commands, a negative one and a positive one. Do not be conformed to this world. The world has a way of doing things. We had some verses last week talking about that. When we talk about the world, we're not necessarily talking about people as much as the idea that is, I can live my life apart from God. I can seek the things of this world. I can seek my own pleasure as an ultimate goal. And we are not to conform to that. We could have had lessons and lessons and lessons upon that because we are continually bombarded by the ways of this world. You turn on the TV, you turn on the radio, you pick up a newspaper, a magazine, and people are telling you this is what is important to you or ought to be important to you. We are not to conform to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are to feed our minds in such a way that we are changed into what God would have us to be. What is the primary way we do that? It's by taking the Word of God and inserting it into our lives in such a way that it influences everything that we do. Do not be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then it says, then... You will know what is good and acceptable and perfect. You will know what the will of God is. We kind of uh, ran out of time when we got to that last phrase. It's interesting. A lot of times we think we can sit here and figure out the will of God apart from obedience to the will of God. That makes no sense, does it? Sometimes we have to do what God wants us to do, that is, transform our mind, so we can understand and appreciate what God's will truly is. You see, our minds tell us what is good in the world. What is the goal? You go back to Aristotle. What is the good? What is the good that is above all other goods? A good that is not obtained for some other end, but is the goal of life. How do we know that? Well, the world will tell that to you. 
Just watch commercials. Every one of them will tell you what is good for you. How do we know what is truly good? By transforming our minds with the Word of God. Then we will know what is good and not before. We will know what is good and acceptable. We had a discussion last week about sacrifices. Remember that? Present your body as a living sacrifice. And we talked about Cain and Abel. And one sacrifice was acceptable and one sacrifice was not acceptable. How do we know what acceptable is? By transforming our minds. By studying the scripture to the point where we know what is and is not acceptable to God. Starting next week, we'll be down in, uh, what is it, verse 9 and following. There's a whole series of commands. I counted 29 of them. What is acceptable to God? There it is. What ought we do? There it is. We'll have a discussion yet again next week in the introduction about is this legalistic that there's a list of 29 things we ought to do. The answer is no. But that's next week's lesson. How do we know what is acceptable to God? God has told us what is acceptable to God. God has informed us. He has not kept us in the dark. He has told us what is acceptable. What's the problem? We are conformed to this world, and so when God says something acceptable, we go, wait, you say that's acceptable, but the world says this is acceptable. Let me find the middle ground between the two. And sometimes we can't do that. I would say most of the time or all the time, we cannot find that middle ground. Why? Because we're trying to keep ourselves in the world and be pleasing with God at the same time. And we can't do that. Acceptable and perfect. What does perfection mean? It is the goal, the end. Where are we trying to get in this world? It would be an interesting study. You know, watch, um, I don't know, watch the Olympics tonight. Four hours of the Olympics. Take every commercial there is and figure out from those commercials what is the goal of life. Find some popular magazine. Take it, look at every ad in that magazine, and try to determine what the goal of life. What does it mean to live life based on that information? Huh. I think we know what you'd find. The question is, what does God say is the, perfect, the purpose, the goal of life? that we would be transformed to the image of his son, that you and I would be reflections of Christ in the world, in the place that he has put us. That is the goal. So, present your body a living sacrifice. Do not conform to this world. Be transformed, and then we will know what the will of God is. It is interesting because I mentioned just a moment ago that starting in verse 9, there's a list of commands. So between 2 that we finished last week and 9 that we're doing next week, you can do the math, right? There's a few more verses. Because it's like he has to get something out of the way before he begins the discussion of what we ought to do to live a life of the Spirit and not a life of the flesh. And what he's going to do is he's going to tell us 
where we stand in the world. Primarily, he's going to tell us two things. Number one, you can't do it on your own. I've got to give you something. And we're going to talk about spiritual gifts. Number two, you can't do it on your own. You need the community of believers. So, picking up on today's lesson in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Number one, figure out who you are. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. Now, that's pretty clear. There shouldn't be any discussion. We should have that down pat, right? Let's have a show of hands. How many of you think too highly of yourself? Oh, don't put your hand up. The rest of you are lying. Not really. <laughs> well, maybe, okay. Why is it our natural tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we ought? We compare ourselves to others, particularly those who are beneath us in some way, right? Well, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there. Go ahead. We want our way. We don't do that, do we? You said a nasty word. Pride. Pharisaical. Let's think about... Um, the early vision of how the universe was put together, okay? Here is the earth. Here are the planets revolving around the earth. Here is the sun revolving around the earth. Here is the universe revolving around the earth. Why did they think that? Because they were on the earth, they were the center of the known universe. And Copernicus came along and said, you know, maybe we're going around the sun. You know, you do the geometry, it kind of works out that way. Maybe we're not the center of the physical universe. How can that be? But look at you as an individual. You see people wandering around you. They enter your field of view. They enter your field of regard. They are around you or they're not. I read a short story years, 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 years ago. And this guy was convinced everything else in the world, everyone, everyone else in the world were all actors staging his life. So he would walk down the street, and the actors would be in front of him setting up things. Okay? And he always thought if he quickly ran into a door, he could catch them setting up the next scene. But that's what we think. Decisions are made by other people. 
And what's the first thing we think? How does it affect me? Why didn't they think, take me into consideration? I mean, you've heard the old joke, right? When you're at the football game and the players get together in a huddle, do you think they're talking about you? <laughs> Yet that's what we think. Those people over there are talking about me. No, they're not. They don't care about you. Oh, that's worse. Why don't they care about me? I'm the center of the... We, given our natural tendencies, will view ourselves as the center of the world because we're the center of our world. And what God is telling us is you need to move out of the way and put the right person at the center of the world. And that right person is God. I've said this before. The first rule of life. There is a God, and you're not it. <laughs> Why do we think that? The real reason? Pride. Why did Satan rebel against God? Pride. Pride is phenomenal. It's just phenomenal what pride will drive you to do. I've mentioned in here before that we do marriage mentoring with young couples that are about to get married in the church. And we have a discussion on conflict. We have a discussion on decision-making. And I tell them repeatedly, if your ego is going to get wrapped up in every decision that is made in your marriage, you're doomed. But we do. How does this affect me? Why doesn't it elevate me? Why doesn't it help me? Me, me, me. Before Paul begins the list of what we need to do, he has to tell you to not think more highly of yourself than you ought. The scripture is full about condemnation of pride and the praising of humility, recognizing where we are, who we are before God. I mean, to me, it's fascinating. Here we are in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans. Chapter 1. We rebelled against God. We worshipped the created thing rather than the creator. We get to chapter 3, and we're talking about how no one seeks after God. No one does what is right. No one does what is good. And we are introduced to the fabulous idea of salvation by faith alone, based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. You don't do anything. You can't do anything. It is all a work of Jesus Christ. And we get to chapter 12 and we go, aren't I great? How can that be? How can that be? Because we think God's real blessed to have us on his side. I urge you not to think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather... Think about yourself sober-mindedly. What does it mean to think sober-mindedly? We could look at the opposite of it. What's the opposite of sober? Drunk. How do drunks think? Not very well. Did I tell you about going to Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago? Took our family. We're on our way to California. We stop at the hotel 
It's six o'clock. I mean, six o'clock, and we're getting on the elevator, and these two younger couples, younger than us, get on, and one of them goes up to my daughter and says, "Don't ever drink." <laughs> and her husband says, "Why did you hit her so hard?" Well, I wanted to tell her something. Now they were happy drunk, which is better than the opposite. But they get off the elevator, and my 14-year-old daughter goes, "I've never seen a drunk person before." But the two days were early because uh, by two hours later she was watching people falling down the stairs. What does that do to your thought processes? What does it do? It just kind of dulls them. So when we are taught, told, commanded to think sober-mindedly, we are to think in the context of the information that God has given us where we fit in the universe. What has God told us? What ought we know about our position in the world? And here it gets fascinating. Are you ready for this? We were made in the image of God. Let's just stop right there and think about that for a moment. That chair was made in the mind of the developer, the designer of that chair. But it wasn't made in the image of God. You and I, as physical, spiritual beings, were made in the image of God. What does that mean? It means that you are of infinite value. Why? Because you won some race in the Olympic? No. Because you are the greatest person, smartest person in the world? No. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the person who made you. You are made in the image of God. I've been listening to some sermons by a pastor in Dallas, and he uses this illustration. He said... He has an individual in his church, paraplegic, in a wheelchair, has to be helped to do everything that he does. And he says, that person is of more value than the greatest racehorse that ever lived because that person is made in the image of God. And that racehorse is a great racehorse. I mean, not, not belittling that at all, not taking anything away from it, but it's a horse. And that person is made in the image of God. Wow, that's great. But let me tell you the next step. At some point, our ancestors and we said no to God. And it says that we fell. We fell into sin. And that image of God was tarnished but not destroyed. Why did we fall? Because we wanted to do things our own way. Did God really say, Eve, that you shouldn't eat of that? <laughs> he was just trying to keep the truth from you. Eat the fruit. And what did Satan tell her? You will be like gods. We were not content with God. We wanted to be God. 
And ever since, you and I in our sinful nature have worked at becoming little gods. And we take little tiny pieces of the universe and we declare it to be our domain and we want to be God. And we forget that we were made in the image of God and we were made to worship God, the one true God. So while we can think of ourselves in an elevated status because we were made in the image of God, we also have to acknowledge that we were not what God would have us to be. But the beauty is Christ returned to make us what we ought to have been, to restore to us the spiritual life that he's given to us. Not to think more highly of ourselves, to think about ourselves sober-mindedly. I might throw in right here, just in passing, um, there seems to be um, the opposite problem a lot of times, that of people thinking too lowly of themselves. First off, I don't think that's as prevalent as people think it is, okay? You hear people all the time saying, well, I'm just not very good. What they're really saying is, shouldn't you give me a little compliment right now? Shouldn't you say something nice about me right now? I am the center of the universe, and I need you to tell me that I'm the center of the universe. Woe is me, I'm not very good. That's what we're doing a lot of the time. But there are those who have been beaten up by life, (laughs) me, us, who oftentimes think, you know, I just can't cut it. You ready for this? You're right, you just can't cut it. That's why we need God. And that's why we need the next section, which is the community of believers. Moving on to verse 4 and 5. It is interesting, you've read all these discussions about why we need more self-esteem and what that. You know, they've done studies, and you know who has the most self-esteem? Psychopaths. (laughs) Just go figure. You can go to prison and find lots of people with a lot of good (laughs) self-esteem. Society just done them wrong. For by the grace, getting a running start with verse 3, Given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. This is the analogy that you have heard all of your life. We are the body of Christ. But do we stop and think about what it really means? Okay, let's talk about the obvious part first, okay? This is a hand. Okay, class? This is a hand. That is a foot. Hand, foot. A hand has certain activities that it can do. It can grasp things. With this wonderful, what is this, the opposable thumb? You know why God gave us thumbs? To give us a target when we're hammering. (laughs) We have fingers. We have a thumb. We have a hand. We have an arm. 
We have a body. The body is made up of lots of pieces that each have their own function. And when one of those functions stop working, you go to the doctor because something's wrong. It's obvious. We know this. We know this to be true. We, collectively, the people in this room, the people in this building, the community of believers around the world are the body of Christ. What does that mean? It means you don't have to be like me. And I don't have to be like you. But I need you and you need me. It's pretty simple. We need the community of believers and we need to acknowledge the fact that God has given us different gifts and talents to support the body, not to support us. We in the West, Western world, since, I don't know, a hundred years ago, have developed this idea of radical individualism. I did it my way and I did it on my own. You know, we have this image of the cowboy riding out to the West, him, his horse, his pistol, his rifle, and he would have died. Why? We need a community. What we often don't realize is wagon trains full of people went to the West. Communities went to the West. And yes, there were individuals who went out in front and led the way. Great. But they were leading the way for the community. There's a quote of Daniel Boone's that we use a lot around my house. Daniel Boone and his friends would you know, disappear into the woods for three years. And they asked him one time, had he ever been lost? And he said, no, but I was bewildered once for three days. <laughs> so when we're on vacation, we're never lost, we're just bewildered. <laughs> he also came back one time after being gone for a year, and his wife had a one-month-old child. But when he found out that the father was his brother, well, at least it has the right last name, we're good. We need a community. We need a community to help us do what we as individuals cannot do. What is it we're, we're supposed to do? bring glory and honor to God in our lives. Now, if my goal is to have all the fun I want, all the pleasure I want, then you may just be an interference. Let's face it. If my goal is to be the center of the universe, you're definitely an interference. If my goal is to do what I want, when I want it, to the extent that I want it, yeah, y'all are just bothersome. Do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We need to acknowledge the fact that we need each other. 
in the same way that the body needs many organs, we could have a long discussion, get all the medical people in here to, to figure out how many of the organs you could live without. But why would we do that? We know that's not healthy. We know it has to be done at times, but we know it's not healthy. We need all the body parts operating as they were intended to. That's what we need, and that's what God has given us. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Did you read that? We all don't have the same function. Now, just like your body has certain parts that are prominent, visible, that the world sees, that you see, you see them every time you look in the mirror, your body has parts that are visible, that the world sees, that are up front. And there is a tendency, why? Because we're thinking too highly of ourselves, to think, well, they're the important people. They're the important people. I'm here to tell you they're not. Billy Graham did the will of God. He does the will of God. He stood up in front of hundreds of thousands of people and proclaimed the gospel. But you and I, helping our neighbor, are doing exactly the same thing. Our human eyes say one is big and important and the other is not. God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. I had a wonderful image of this probably a year ago, sitting in the congregation. We were singing music, and I don't know if you're aware, there's a guy that rolls around here in his wheelchair, you know, he comes from miles away, rides his little automatic wheelchair, and he was up in the balcony, we were standing to sing, and some man, I don't even know who the man was, held him so he could stand while we sing. Let me tell you, that man's job brings glory and honor to God as much as Ted preaching a sermon. No question. Is he going to get a standing ovation? Is he going to? Probably not. But God knows. We each have different functions. The reason that we have trouble with this is because we're still thinking too highly of ourselves. Don't compare yourself with your neighbor or me or the pastor or Billy Graham. Look to Christ and find out what Christ would have you to do and do that. That's all we're called to do. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one with another. That is the unity of the body of Christ. Let me tell you, we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be people that look like you. 
and there's going to be people that don't look like you. There's going to be people who talk like you, and there's going to be people who don't talk like you. There are going to be people, and you're going to go, you're here? Where are you even from? I mean, we were watching the opening ceremonies the other night of the Olympics, and my, one of my daughters and her boyfriend were there, and it's a geography lesson. You know, where is that country? There were a couple of them I'd never even heard of before. We are a body of Christ. And we're going to get to heaven, and there's going to be Baptist and Bible church people and Methodist, some of them. (laughs) I actually had a Sunday school teacher one time when I was in the singles department, and he was talking about cults, and he talked about the Methodist. And I'm going, I don't think so. You know, the Wesleys did really well. Yeah, they've run amok a little bit, but... I was on an airplane one time and sat next to a Methodist minister. The first words out of his mouth were, were I'm part of the Methodist church that still believes the Bible. <laughs> so he felt compelled. Anyway, there's going to be Methodists. There's going to be Catholics. There's going to be... Why? Because we're all in the body of Christ. What does that mean? <sighs> we need to look wide. And we need, to think not, we need to not think too highly of ourselves. We are the body of Christ. <sighs> Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, in, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. Everyone who has the spiritual gift of singing is now leaving to go to the choir. (laughs) Spiritual gifts are one of those terms that we use a lot, but I think it's important that we understand what they are. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God has given us, collectively, everything that we need to do His will. And He has done this by giving us His Word and by giving us gifts, energies, that allow us to do what God would have us to do. Now, why didn't he just give them all to me? Because my pride would say that I don't need you. I mean, really, let's face it. If God gave everything that every one of us needed to every one of us, we would go do our own thing. And that's not what God wants. God wants us collectively to support each other. He has given us gifts to make me look good? No, to serve the body. It is interesting. We're going to have a 15-minute discussion about spiritual gifts. You could talk about spiritual gifts for hours. Every gift has a 
mode of operation where it is doing what it is supposed to do. Most of them also have a perversion where they're used for my own end. God gives me a gift and I use it to make me look good. That's why we need a community to whack us up the side of the head and say, you're going the wrong way. Okay? Use it to serve one another as good stewards. Steward, what is a steward? A steward is somebody who doesn't own the stuff but is managing the stuff on someone else's account. We don't own any of this stuff. God owns every bit of it. And the day God wants to take it back, God will take it back. But until then, we are to be good stewards of the gifts that he has given us. You don't have the latest version of office. (laughs) Story of my life. There are four primary passages that deal with spiritual gifts. We are not going to look at all of these today. The Romans passage, which is the one that we're all, we are going to look at, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 12, several parts in that, and the First Peter verse that we just looked at. Each of these will present a list of spiritual gifts. There's lots of overlap between the, them. Um, so you end up with a list of I don't know, 19-something different gifts. There is some discussion about whether this list is complete. You know, could God give you another gift? Sure. God will give us what we need. But he's given us this list to demonstrate to us what the body needs to do its function. And we're going to talk about the Romans list today. Trust me, it'll give us enough to talk about. So, Here is the list from Romans chapter 12. So, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. That's one of those statements that is supposed to be obvious, right? God's given you something, go do it. Hmm. It's supposed to be obvious. Having gifts and gifts that differ according to the grace he's given us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, we are to exercise that gift. Now, at that point, we have to ask ourselves, what is the gift of prophecy? There's a second question. Is it still applicable today? We normally think of a prophet as someone who tells the future, right? God told me, to tell you he's going to zap the planet the day after the election. (laughs) Whoever wins, he's going to zap the planet the day after the election. That's a prophecy about the future. Now, it is interesting, in biblical terms, in the Old Testament, being a prophet was a big deal. But not only was it a big deal, it carried a huge responsibility. Because if the day after the election God doesn't zap the planet... The day after the day after the election, you get to stone me. Okay? Prophets weren't people that just guessed about what the future was going to bring. They were given the word of God to tell the people what was going to happen. And if they pretended and it didn't work, they didn't get a second chance. That's how important it was. It was a big deal. 
The term prophet actually means someone who speaks for someone else. Do you remember Moses? We covered this last year when we went through the book of Exodus. Moses was told to go speak to Pharaoh. And he says, I I don't speak very well. I think he was just scared to death, okay? My speculation is he spoke fine, but that's pure speculation on my part. So God says, okay, take Aaron with you, and Aaron will be your spokesman. And it says in Exodus, Aaron was Moses' prophet because he stood and presented the word of Moses to Pharaoh. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who speaks for someone else. Which brings us to a question. Is the gift of prophecy still in action today? The first answer is no. Why? Because we have the word of God. We have the written word of God right here. The second answer is yes, because we have the word of God. So what is the prophet? The prophet is the person who takes the word of God and expounds it to the people. I have a book written by a Puritan writer, uh, The Art of Prophesying, and it's all about preaching, how to preach the word of God accurately. So let's back up one step. Are there gifts that are no longer active today? And this is a source of great controversy. We've actually covered it in here before, so I'll just summarize it. Namely, we're talking about speaking in tongues and the gift of healing and maybe prophesying. What is often talked about, the gift of knowledge, where God tells me some specific knowledge about you. God told me you ought to do this. Our church believes that there are gifts that ceased when the apostles were done with their ministry. Okay? This is the way we look at that. Why did Christ heal people? Did Christ heal people because his job was to heal people? No, his job was to seek and to save those which were lost. He came to die for our sins. Why did he heal people? Because it validated who he was. Why did the apostles heal people? There was no word of God. How would we know if an apostle said something, it was the word of God, because that apostle just healed somebody down the street, and we go, wow. But once the word of God was given to us, and we have it sitting right here, it is the validation. And so we believe that there are certain gifts that ceased namely speaking in tongues, and the gift of healing. Now, I want to back up, though, and say something very, very clearly. Does this mean God doesn't heal people? It does not mean that. Does it, not, does it mean that God can't do what God wants to do? God's going to do what he wants to, wants to do, okay? If God wants to walk in here and heal everybody in this building, God will walk in here and heal everyone in this building. God's going to do what God wants to do. What it does mean 
is that we don't think that there are individuals who can walk around healing people on demand. Otherwise, why aren't those people down at Harris Hospital this morning taking care of business? But God is still in the business of healing people. We are still told to pray for the sick. We are still told to bring the elders together, anoint them in oil, and pray for their, okay? God's going to do what God wants to do. So when we say that there are certain gifts that are no longer active, we're not saying that God can't do what he wants to do. It's just that we think those served a purpose at a particular point in time. Which brings us back to the question, which is prophecy. Is the gift of prophecy still valid today? And I will give you the definitive answer, yes and no. (laughs) Can we move on to the next one now? I believe that a prophet is somebody who proclaims the word of God. Stands up in the pulpit and says, thus saith the Lord. And it's an interesting phrase. It says, in proportion to our faith. The NIV probably mistranslates this, and it says, in accordance to his faith. In proportion to our faith means in keeping with our faith, the faith that has been revealed to us. What does that mean? That means if you go to a church and the preacher takes this and sets it aside and starts preaching something else counter to that, he's not a preacher, he's a false prophet. Don't go there. The person who prophesies expounds the word of God in keeping with the word of God that has been delivered to us. And that's what they're called to do. Do I believe that God gives new words of God? Maybe. Maybe to you as an individual. Do I think God will ever, ever, ever tell you, instruct you to do anything that violates the word of God? No, he will not. If God tells you to dump your spouse and go chasing after something else, it's not God. It's the world. Bottom line. Prophesying is taking the word of God and communicating it to the people. Service. What is service? It's ministering to other people. There's actually been some discussion because the word that's used here is the word that we use for deacons. Is this a gift that is limited to deacons? And the answer is no. There are those who have the gift of service. They just look for things that need fixing. And they do it. And they do it well. Now, the word service comes from the word serve, which is where we get the word servant, which we don't like because it applies a subservient position. And you want to know something? Sometimes it does. There are plenty of people who are willing to serve as long as you acknowledge that I'm in charge while I'm serving. You know people like that, right? Let me be in charge and I'll be a humble servant. Teaching. What is teaching? Teaching is explaining the Word of God. Taking the Word of God 
explaining it. It's kind of different than even if you accept the prophecy, which is proclaiming the word of God, thus saith the Lord, then we get together and go, okay, what does that mean? And we work through that. That is teaching. I do think there is a distinction. They oftentimes overlap. I've heard people who were very good at saying, thus saith the Lord. And they were, I mean, good as in they did it correctly. They took the word of God and they said, here it is. And that's good and valid. But then there's teachers who come along and say, okay, what does that mean? Exhort. What does it mean to exhort someone? It means to encourage them. And this is a lot more than just, you know, oh, have a good day as we walk down the street. This means walking up, walking with someone and saying, how can I encourage you in your Christian life? In fact, it's really kind of the same Greek word that is used to refer to the Holy Spirit as the comforter. He comes along and he walks with us to help us on our Christian life. It's interesting to me. This sounds too much like a soapbox. We live our individual lives. We go inside our individual homes. We watch our individual TV screens. We eat our individual meals. Okay, we have somebody else there, our family members, but pretty much we're still. And we're isolated from each other. Where are the people who are walking beside you? And where are the people whom you are walking beside to help them on their Christian life? Contribute. That's giving stuff. Money, that's a good one. But just giving stuff. And it's interesting because some of these, it just says basically, okay, you're going to serve, then go serve. This one, it actually gives you an instruction. You are to do it with generosity. How do you know if somebody has the gift of giving? They love it. If you have to pry that dollar out of their cold, dead fingers, they probably don't have the gift of giving. Lead. That's good old-fashioned management. Eh, better not use that word. Groups, communities need to be led. We need to be instructed on how to do what we ought to do. But it's interesting. It says with zeal, with enthusiasm. Why? Because sometimes leaders get fed up dealing with sheep. Somebody say sheep. She said it. Leaders are to lead with zeal. And finally, the gift of mercy. What is mercy? It's helping people in their time of distress, showing people that life's okay. You know, it's putting your arm around the person that's crying and not saying a thing, just crying with them. And it's interesting because it says do this with cheerfulness. Why would they add that? Because at some point... If you're showing mercy, you're around people that need mercy, and sometimes being around people that need mercy is hard. It is. Let's just face it. Now, we're out of time.
But there are a couple of questions that you'll want to ask, which is, number one, how do you find your gift? We have a class that this church offers called SHAPE. It's not a program we developed. It's used a lot of places. Basically, it helps you to determine what areas that you can serve in based on your spiritual gifts, your heart, your abilities, your personality, and your experience. It's a good thing. Go do it. Having said that, let me tell you the best way of determining your spiritual gift. Go do it. To me, it's interesting because if you look at this list here from Romans chapter 12 of the spiritual gifts, we're all called to do all of these things. I mean, just look at the last one. The fact that I don't have the gift of mercy, does that mean that I'm free never to show anyone any mercy? No. We are to show everyone mercy. The fact that I don't have the gift of giving, of contribution, does that mean I'm free not to give the church any money? No. We're all instructed to give. The difference is, is that as we're doing all of these, some of them you'll start looking at going, wow, I, I really like this. And people around you will go, wow, you're really good at that. And you'll do it and you'll have joy doing it and you'll go, wow, God gave me this gift. Trust me, if you sit at home in your study, even with your Bible in front of you, and you tell yourself, I'm going to sit here until God reveals my spiritual gift to me, maybe he'll tell you. But if you go out and work in the children's department downstairs, a year from now, you may think, oh my gosh, I'm ready to get out of here. That would be me. And maybe that's not your spiritual gift. But maybe after a year you go, wow, this is cool. I am impacting the next generation. I am teaching four-year-olds. And you think, wow. Maybe God gave me this gift. And that's a good thing. So how do we determine our gift? Go to work. Yes, Jerry. Well, if you see that four-year-old, and a year later you say, I want to do ten-year-old, mm-hmm. it's still a spiritual It's the same thing. Yeah. Trust me. I love teaching. But if you put me in a class of (laughs) four-year-olds, toast. Okay? But even the fact that I love teaching doesn't mean that the first time I taught, it was any good at all. It wasn't. I remember it. It wasn't any good. It doesn't mean the next three years of it was very good. But God will reveal the gift that he has given you if you're seeking after it. But what do you, wait, 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 wait. What's the purpose of the gift? To serve the body. Not only will God reveal it to you, the body will reveal it to you as we are working to do his will. Well, we have minus six minutes. Number four and number seven. What's the, ex- the difference between exhorting and showing mercy? You're a new believer. 
and I come along beside you, and I'm going to walk with you to encourage you in your spiritual walk. I am exhorting you. Sometimes that may be saying, good job. Sometimes that may be saying, you know, you really messed that up. Okay, that's exhorting, encouraging, leading you on in your spiritual life. Mercy, your child just died, and somebody comes up to you and puts their arm around you and says, how can I help? And that's all it is. I'm not necessarily, I am eventually, but I'm not necessarily interested in your spiritual growth at this point. I'm here to show mercy to you. That's the difference. Now, once again, we are one body and all of these interact. If you have a church that is totally based on the gift of mercy, there's no other spiritual gift but mercy, you may be the nicest people in the world, you're headed toward heresy. You are. If you have a church who's totally based on teaching, we're going to have the best teaching in the world, and I don't give a flip what happens in your life, shut up and sit down, we're going to teach. God gives all of these to us because we need all of them. All of them. Some of them are visible. I stand up in here, you see me teach. When you go out this week and put your arm around the person that's grieving, maybe nobody will see it. But God will. And that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have equipped us to accomplish your goals and your desires. I pray, Lord, that we would present our bodies, that we would not be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds through your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.